Hello, and welcome to the stories that brought you here, a podcast dedicated to the people who live on a small island off the coast of British Columbia called Pender. I am your host, Chris Wachluck, and it is my humble job, duty, privilege, pleasure to sit down with people who live in our community and get to hear the stories about what brought them to this little island we live on and to also hear the stories that really shaped them as they were growing up and into their uh, early adulthood and beyond. So this time around, I speak with a very talented musician named Johnny Miller. And in this interview, Johnny talks a lot about some great Pender stuff. A lot of Pender people name-dropped and mentioned and given props for helping Johnny along the way and also a lot of talk about playing music with people. And Johnny also talks about his experiences growing up in Vancouver and spending time in California, developing his music, going to rainbow gatherings, living in the Kootenays, having a child. A lot of great stuff in this interview that was actually recorded in the springtime. And my apologies to Johnny for taking so long to get the finishing touches on this thing. But if you are a regular listener to this podcast, I'm just going to get real with you for a minute here and say that uh, I've had a really difficult time the last little while. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I know that this has been (laughs) a very, very challenging time for close to two years for almost all of us, if not all of us. And I haven't had a lot of energy to give in this direction, meaning the podcast, because I've been pretty depleted and I've been struggling with the state of the world and just trying to make sense of everything I do want to mention something before we get the podcast started along those lines, and I think it's important to say, and it is this. Once I was doing the edit for this podcast just less than a week ago, I recaptured a sense of delight about remembering the curiosity and wonder about asking about Johnny's story. And it felt so good to remember that again. And if you are somebody who is maybe also struggling a little bit and looking for a sense of connection and purpose, I would suggest to you that taking a delight in someone else's life and reaching out with curiosity about how someone is doing can be of great personal help to us because we live in an amazing community with so many incredible people. And I really feel as if we are being pushed into believing that there are many different sides that exist and we're being corralled into smaller and smaller groups. And there are multiple wedges that are being driven into us and dividing us apart. That's my perspective on this reality that we're existing in. And I think that it's very important for us to try to come together and see each other's humanity and remember how special and lovely we are and what a gift it is to be here and how important it is to be supportive of each other. So with that being said, I want to say to you who's listening to this, I love you and I care about you. And I'm happy that you showed up to listen to this. And to Johnny, 
I'm sorry this took so long to get done, but here we go. So without much more of a wait, but a little music before we begin, here's my interview with Johnny Miller. So with the recording that you're doing, what what does your recording space look like? Um, it's a little bunk, ten by ten bunkhouse with some kickouts and a little loft that Austin built, Austin Davies, on the house that we bought from them. And uh yeah, it's really nice, just sort of hand done wood, everything. Recycled windows, old windows, things like that. So it probably get a breeze blown through there pretty easy, but uh it's great for songwriting and just took the the gear, kind of stuck it all in a little day pack and a microphone stand and walk down there and just plug it all in down there and try and kind of feel the vibe and get that space creative in that way. And then uh, take it up at night, keep the gear safe. And yeah, it's pretty portable. I guess if you had a battery pack or something, you could do outdoor environmental field stuff, which would be super cool. Now Heather's going to have it for the next month because she's doing a producing and songwriting intensive course thing. So I had my turn now. It's her turn. <laughs> she's taking the course or she's... Yeah. All right. I thought she might have been teaching the course, but... No, no. I know a little bit more, but not much or have a little more experience with it than she does. So she'll probably pass me after taking this course, which would be great. And then I can learn some more from her. Yeah. Fantastic. Right. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay, well, let's uh, let's get into the first question that uh, this podcast is all about. Uh, what brought you to Pender Island? Ah, what brought me to Pender Island? Oh, I would say it was more of a who, which was Leanne Lundquist, who was my girlfriend at the time. And we came to house sit and take care of the dogs and cat for Jamie Bradley, who's her ex. They were married here and as part of her getting a deckhand job. She had to live in Victoria to be based out of Swartz Bay, I guess. So she moved away, but she said, oh, we should go to Penner. I think you'd love it. And uh, we came over and I thought, yeah, this place is cool and it's really close. And I grew up in Vancouver, so it's kind of right in between the two. I could see myself living here. I think we came over during Christmas and then... Either that's, yeah, I think it was that summer. It happened fairly quick. My son grew up and moved out. And I thought, well, I've had enough of the city. I'm going to go back to the country because we came from the Kootenays before. And Pender seems really cool. And I know somebody there. And if it doesn't work out, it's easy to bail back to Victoria or even Vancouver for that matter. And came over because there was a post probably on the Facebook page or something and Leanne saw it and Susan Dudley and Eric Pohl had a place for rent up behind the driftwood so it was the only place I looked at it and I absolutely loved it and on principle said okay well I'd like to think about it for an hour or three can I get back to you but don't give it to anyone else because I really like it but just on principle I like to let it sit for a minute so we walked down to the bakery and sat there and had a snack, and I just couldn't wait to 
confirm it. I was so excited about it. And yeah, that's how I ended up here. Okay. So what year was this in? Uh, that was 2014. Pretty sure it was June 1st I moved in, possibly May 1st. Okay. 2014. Okay. Well, that's kind of interesting because like already those names are sounding familiar. Jamie Bradley and Eric Pohl. So, okay. It's 2014 and then you, you find this place and then you have your experience on Pender. What was the first year like for you? Oh gosh. The first year was very exciting. Everything was new and sort of magical and, uh, I remember the first time I went back to the city, which was probably a week or two after I moved in. You know, I had something to do in town. And it was in the morning. I was catching the morning ferry. And you hang the left there at the hall. There's that straightaway with the big tall trees. And it was just so beautiful out. And I could hear the birds really clear. That just really stuck in my memory. is like, oh, this is Pender. And you don't want to leave. <laughs> it's really great here. I remember the summer, of course was fantastic and there was a lot of bees more bees than there are now that's really noticeable and more birds than there are now too seemed like for me anyways 2015 2016 it got quieter here uh, as far as the wildlife with the exception of the deer probably but to hear them munching away the open mic was just firing up with sarah and elizabeth and that was cool and Another part of moving here for me and the place, the cabin there, was to write music and be alone and have that space. It's kind of like a two-story loft, so 16 feet peak or whatever on the ceiling. So great acoustics and wood floor. And um, right away I was trying to meet the musicians and see what was going on with that. And I went to the Legion one night, probably in... August or something, and I think it was Tom Dodge had set up a jam with uh, Charlie Knowles and Rick McMullen and Ben McConkie, and my gosh, if I'm forgetting anyone, I'm sorry, but everyone had left, and it was just those people, and we just started rocking out. We had this great jam, and I felt like, oh, okay, I, I made the music connection. And that was great. And then I learned that Charlie and Heather Knowles lived just across the the gully from me through the woods. And they showed me a cool little path between our houses. And so that was like a real welcome to the neighborhood kind of experience, meeting those people. And then I went to a slow coast jam, all things you could do before a pandemic, and um, met a few more folks there, Howard and Cupid and Dobro Bob and his partner Elizabeth. And I met Dan Sharman. And that that was sort of my first real I mean I knew from that jam at the Legion that Tom and I would later connect. I really dug Tom and but I just didn't know where he was or who he was. I thought maybe he was from Victoria or something. So then I met Dan and I said, oh, yeah, I'm trying to grow some potatoes. I hear you got a farm because Leanne said, oh, yeah, you should connect with Dan. He's got a farm. He's really cool. You guys would hit it off. And, yeah, just totally hit it off with Dan musically. And I went and helped out with the potatoes and started helping out on the farm. And 
and that's been probably my key relationship on Pender. There's a few, and Dan and Susan and uh, Tom. Those are like my main connections on Pender over the years. But that first year, I guess I met all those people and just kind of settled in and started writing in the way that you write when you have lots of time and lots of space. How do you write when you have lots of time and lots of space? What way is that? Um, well, I relaxed vocally because I could sing out. And it's nice when you can sing out and then hear it come back at you too. And that room was a nice shape for that. And there were certain corners or things you could position yourself in relation to to get different sounds. And so it taught me to sing out, I guess, in that way more so. And then it just became much more prolific. I was just always writing, which was great. I mean, I always felt that that was in there, just waiting to come out so I could actually do it now or then. And yeah, just odd hours and whenever you get the inspiration and setting up recording gear, which I'm now farther along with, with more information and equipment and experience and friends. And so that was the start of that. I also met Clark Becker at that first open mic. And in fact, I saw him at, uh, I think it was the second Fergus Fest or something like that. Okay. Down at Browning there. And there was quite a few bands and a big stage set up. It was a bit of a big deal. And I saw Clark walking around. I thought, who's that guy? He's obviously a rock and roller. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And I, that's the guy I got to know. But something about the way he carries himself and stuff, I was a little intimidated. Not like scared, but just I thought, man, this guy's so cool. I better not blow it. Eventually I met him. and uh, And then... Him and Charlie and I recorded over a month, maybe that first winter, but more likely the second winter. I can't remember exactly now. You know, I've heard from a few people that are new to the island at various points in the last 10 years that it's difficult meeting people. And that what I'm hearing from you is that because of your purposeful integration into the music scene, that sounds like you made so many connections really quickly and that this island for people who live here and who are musical or maybe even not, but just sort of have a idea of what's going on. It's a really musical island. Yeah. I, I mean, I think musicians all kind of have that. I think dichotomy is a relevant word, but where they love to be alone, but they also feel alone and want to meet other people like them, musicians that understand that struggle i guess so and yeah there are a bunch of musicians here and i knew les and may were here leanne told me that and that was probably now that i think about it pretty pivotal knowledge for me like because i grew up in the kootenays grew up meaning in like my young 20s les was the hip musician and that would have been the late 90s i guess that would pass through with his band and they'd rock out the local scout hall or whatever. And uh, I went and saw some of his shows and just thought, man, this guy is awesome. This is what I would be doing if I wasn't doing everything I'm doing and I'd had more time and gotten better and all that stuff. 
And he was playing at that first Fergus Fest, too. Okay. Right with on. Clark, probably, I'm sure. And Charlie. <laughs> and knowing that Les lived on the island. Yeah. Was... And I thought, oh, maybe I could get to know him. And yeah, there's actually cool people. And um, I'd also heard, I won't mention any names, but everybody knows everybody. So, <laughs> you know, probably who's on what side of this. But uh, apparently in the 90s to mid 2010s or whatever in that kind of area i guess there was a heavy drinking scene on pender that's just what the scene was and lots of other stuff too but but by the time i showed up that had seemed to be less popular i think that kind of social scene the crazy drinking parties wasn't happening as much anymore which suits me great and i i knew that less was not like that and pretty cool so it made me feel like oh yeah pender's cool i want to go to pender <laughs> okay yeah and so for people listening who don't know uh you're talking about lester quitzow yes lester quitzow and namor yeah and uh i did an interview with lester i think episode 39 maybe oh cool yeah it was really cool it was really fun actually it was good but i'm curious because when you mentioned the kootenays and less going through this band in the 90s where in the kootenays were you when you were in your 20s uh i remember seeing him and I think I may have seen him at a couple other things, but I have a, a more vivid memory of seeing him in Caslow. Oh, at, yeah. At, I think it was the Scout Hall or maybe the church in town or something. It was a cool, it's kind of small, almost the size of your house, but done up like a little concert hall. And uh, yeah, I, I think he had a three-piece band and they were just rocking out maybe four. Yeah. So did you live in Caslow? Uh, I lived north of Caslow almost an hour in a little place called Hauser, which had maybe 10 occupied houses or something like that. Okay. What were you doing there? Um, I was with my partner, Delia, at the time, and she was pregnant. So we were nesting <laughs> and uh, had the at-home birth there, way out in the middle of nowhere with the midwives. And then shortly thereafter, moved down to Vancouver, and then back to Nelson, and then the valley, uh, Slocan Valley, and then ended up in Victoria. This is, like, so fun about doing these podcasts. I didn't even know you had a son. Oh, well, there you go, yeah. Yeah, like, you and I know each other, like, a little bit, but uh -huh. uh, even before we decided to do this, I was like, ah, I don't really want to know too much. I want to be kind of surprised. And, like, when you mentioned that earlier, I was like, what? He's got a son? I didn't even know. Yeah, Ma Malachite, he came to Pender... I think it was 2017 or something like that and stayed with me for the summer and got a job at Poets. And, um, you know, he was kind of done with a bunch of things in the city and needed a change. I said, oh, why don't you come over here? And Because there was a room under the loft in, in my place. So he had his own little room and uh, sleep in, do whatever you want to do, take your time and get a little summer job. And, uh, you know, it might be a little work to find one, but sure we can do it so after a week or something of relaxing and catching up on sleep so well let's go down to poets and see what's shaking there so we basically asked in one place and he got the job right away and that was it and then he worked for the summer and made friends with the, the kitchen crew there and uh yeah it was great having him here cool man okay well let's let's backtrack a little yes. bit to back to the kootenays and that uh so you were there with your, your partner, Dahlia, at yeah. the time? And, and you have a son on the way. What age were you at that point? 
24. 24. 23 to 24. Okay. Okay. Maybe like rewind a little bit before that. And and, uh, how did you get into the Kootenays and the pregnancy and everything? How did that evolve? Yeah. um, Well, that would have to take me back to the fact that I grew up in Vancouver and Kitsilano mostly, but not exclusively. Moved around quite a bit, relatively speaking. And um, graduated high school, got into music at that point. So that's when music first started for me through a really good friend of mine, John Biddle, who we were both teenagers at the time in California in Santa Cruz, where I spent some time with my dad. Okay. And so then I came back here, went to Cap College for a few months, eh, maybe six months. I don't remember exactly the music program there. And dropped out and various goings on and ended up on kind of the freak scene on commercial drive. And there was an organic store there with a collective and a farm and a shared house. And that was very wild. And through meeting people there, a bunch of us kind of defected from the city and went to the Coonies. And I think. I'd been there maybe two years or something like that, just living the, oh gosh, I think I was on welfare and, you know, just living the 21-year-old life. And then I met Delia through a a mutual friend and uh, wasn't too much longer, maybe six months or something, and then it was pregnancy and then we got married in the following summer and what was going on in the Kootenays? Uh, music was going on. I was meeting people. Um, a good friend of mine through that freak scene on Commercial Drive. He was really into reggae and he was kind of the first person I really jammed with where I felt like, wow, we're playing music and it's taking off and we're riding it. And it was super cool. And that was in the stairwell of Co-op Radio, for anyone who's been in that building, right on Pigeon Square there. Wow, okay. Which may have a, a new politically correct name. I don't know. That's what it was always called back in the day. So when you're saying a freak scene on Commercial Drive, yeah. what exactly do you mean? Um, It was political, for sure. There was a lot of people who were in the somewhat well-known at the time squats on Francis Street or something. I may have the street wrong, but there were some squats in Vancouver at that time that got raided by the police, and it was a big deal. And a lot of us, although I never went to any of the logging on Vancouver Island protests at the time that were a big deal, like Clayquat and um, Walbran, I think those were the two big ones. So there was that kind of stuff going on. And it was a pivotal time in the organic certification history as too. So we were kind of involved with that in that collective that I was talking about. And, you know, young, wild, and free, or so we thought, <laughs> I like to think, and uh, all the usual entertainment and fashion and whatever, in this sort of inner city cast-offs and going to the rainbow gatherings and school buses in the summers and holing up in 
shared housing with way too many people in the winters and stuff like that. Okay, so for people who don't know what a rainbow gathering is, what is a rainbow gathering? I'm not um, someone who could give you the history. I'd just be my history on it, I guess, of my experience of it. I think it kind of came out of the counterculture somehow related to the Grateful Dead parking lot scene. It was similar people or something, but also with some probably beatnik stuff from farther back even or political stuff or back to the wilderness stuff or it was kind of a very american kind of back to the land i imagine a lot of those people went on to become survivalists and eventually trump supporters you know which is weird but uh so it had like a a real again mix uh, or dichotomy if you will of Freaks and the way I knew them, sort of left-wing, um, freedom kind of thing. And then this right-wing American version of freedom, I can do whatever I want and screw everybody else kind of thing. So that was why I didn't end up all that involved with that. Once a year, I imagine it's still happening, but it's it was, a, it was like when the... Um, Burning Man was at its height whenever that was. I know it's still a big deal, but at one point it kind of peaked. And so did the Rainbow Gatherings, and I think that might have been the one I went to. And they, once a year they have the National, because there's these regional ones, like on a state-by-state -state basis or even a county, which are all U.S. because it's in the U.S., but it spilled over into Canada too. So I went to some on Galliano, I think. Okay. When I was like 19 or something. So that was an early experience with Gulf Islands that made me think, oh, yeah, I'd like to come back sometime. And so the National was in Colorado, and there was like 10,000 people way out in the middle of this alpine wilderness. So that was pretty crazy. That's the Rainbow Gathering. And in the parking lot, because there's a big parking lot scene there, quite like a Grateful Dead concert, they segregate the right-wing, drinking, gun-toting people into their own area, and they go crazy and get in fights and drink and hopefully don't shoot their guns off. You know, it's like, ugh. Thanks for explaining that. That's yeah. that's interesting because I've never been to a rainbow gathering. I just have a vague idea of uh, what they're about. Actually, I'm working with somebody right now who's been telling me some stories of rainbow gatherings, and uh, mm. it's, it's nice to get a little more... Uh, oh, neat. Sorry? I just said, oh, neat. I don't hear many people talk about it anymore. So Yeah. So when you were in your 20s and you're having these different experiences and trying different things as we do in our 20s, what was really resonating with you? Obviously, music was, but what mm -hmm. was really pulling you in a particular direction? Because you're talking about hanging out on the freak scene and commercial drive and mm -hmm. then going to rainbow gatherings and then moving to the Kootenays and it seems like trying a lot of different things. What really wound up pulling you in a particular direction that you felt like, okay, I feel, I feel as if my life is moving this way. Well, I would say that actually goes farther back to the fact that my parents were like that, you know? So I was kind of going back to what I was born into sort of freaks of the day, if you will, you know, hippies, at the, as they called them at the time, and the Bay Area. So San Francisco kind of, you know, when I was young, I spent some time there. And 
the Kootenays, when I first came to Canada, we actually moved to Nelson. So I kind of felt like, oh yeah, I should go back there. So that's part of why I ended up in the Kootenays, although it was all my friends who went first. And Nelson and the Kootenays in general has always had waves of people that kind of discover it and create a scene and go back. And it's interesting that way. I've, I've been there recently and it's not resonating for me at all. So I don't know if I changed or it changed. Probably both, I'm sure. Totally. Well, let's talk about your parents for a little bit, if uh, you're cool with that. So your parents uh, were hippies. Yes, yes. East Coast uh, Baltimore hippies. East Coast Baltimore hippies. Yeah, which, you know, that wasn't a good place to be a hippie. So they (laughs) quickly went to San Francisco, (laughs) headed out west. Yeah. Okay. I'm curious about the story of people's parents because mm. uh, they're the reason that we're here, our mm-hmm. parents, right? But uh, what what is uh, your mom and dad's first name? Uh, my mom's name is Rose and my father's name is Rob. Okay. Yeah. All right. Rose and Rob. Yeah. What uh, can you tell us about your parents? Uh, let's see. I believe they met in university or I think it was called college at the time. There's a different system there. You went to college first and then university if you wanted to. And they caught the wave of freaks and headed west and left all that behind. And I don't know much of the story. or I mean, I've heard it lots, but I just don't retain it. I I think at one point they hopped trains and got you know, rousted out by the train cops somewhere in like Nevada or something and spent the night in jail and got told to piss off in the morning and don't come back. That kind of treatment that people would, the long hairs of the time would get. And then I think they went somewhere. I don't remember the details. You know, they tried to find Ken Kesey or something and there was nothing going on. So they went to San Francisco. And at that time, which would have been... I think the late 60s, maybe like 67 or something like that. You know, it wasn't a full-blown thing yet, so they knew people who knew people who were, you know, they weren't too far removed from, like, trying to go find Ken Kesey or something. It's not quite as far-fetched as it sounds. Then, I guess a couple years after that, although I'm not sure on this exactly, I came along. And then we moved around a bit in the Bay Area and then went down to Arizona. And then it fell apart for them. And we ended up in Canada in the Kootenays because my mom was going tree planting. And um, yeah, lost touch with my dad for quite a while. And uh, yeah. Okay, so the history of your parents, it sounds like from what you said that you were influenced, like some of the decisions that you're making in your 20s were influenced by what your parents had done when they were younger. Yeah, like one that I remember that always made me think like, yeah, I want to be a musician was, um, well, Hendrix. I was just like a Hendrix freak from the first moment ever. As a young boy, it's like... He's an action figure, you know. <laughs> wow, look at this guy. And then both of my parents told me the story at different times of how they went to a Hendrix concert when my mom was pregnant. So I had, I had been there. So I always felt like this connection to it or something. So little things like that were pivotal in, I guess, where I've been drawn 
you know, and another one was, yeah, I guess they were young enough where you could say they grew up in, but no, when they went out to the coast, west coast, and were in the Bay Area and north of the Bay Area, they lived amongst the redwoods, and I've seen a few pictures. Yeah, and I'm in some of them, so I was there, I guess. So I've always wanted to get back to the big trees. You know, I can never get enough big trees. <laughs> Fair enough. I love the redwoods, man. I yeah. think that they're just so incredible. Yeah, the redwoods and the sequoias of Northern California. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, your mom's pregnant at a Jimi Hendrix concert. Yeah, so, Winterland. Like, what's that? Winterland, I think it was the New Year's Eve show at Winterland or New Year's Day or whatever that was. Maybe there was both. Yeah, for Hendrix freaks out there, they know what show that is. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, and so let, let's jump deep into the music side of things because you're talking about getting into music after high school? Yeah, I, I'm. well, I was 16 and uh, I went down to Santa Cruz to live with my dad for a bit because I was an ordinary teenager and <laughs> my mom had had enough of it. Yeah. And I wanted to hang out with my dad. I hadn't lived with him since I was a baby, really. I saw him a couple of summers, but I met this guy. He lived just down the street, and he had just moved there from over near San Francisco. And Santa Cruz is just across the mountain range on the ocean from the South Bay of San Francisco Bay. And he knew how to play guitar, (laughs) like actually knew how to play it. And I was trying to learn how to play it at the time because what was inspiring me I guess my dad, he had like a, f- a red Fender Bullet electric guitar and he was teaching me to play Louie Louie and he would play with some of his buddies and he had a little drum set so he wanted someone to jam with, I think. And then John showed me how to play guitar and that was the start of it and there was a heavy reggae scene in Santa Cruz. So we went to like 20 of these big reggae fest shows they called them it was just like a saturday night thing and there would be three or four of these classic bands you know you thought you'd never see i don't know peter tosh or something like that and some other you know third world and uh oh i saw so many amazing bands and it was a real heavy duty scene like you'd see these same people there's i think it fit about a couple of thousand maybe three or four thousand people so it was like this big grooving scene of sweaty freaks and reggae. So this was this another early scene that kind of influenced me. So through that, we started creating little bands and we were, a couple of them were reggae bands. And, you know, we were horrible, I'm sure, but it was a lot of fun. And he was also, he was into some metal, but I didn't really like that so much. Like he was into Slayer and Wasp and. It's kind of aggressive stuff. But I came from Zeppelin and Hendrix, and I was really into Sabbath, too. So we kind of said, oh, you like Sabbath? I like Sabbath. And then we figured, oh, yeah, we're we're cool. So he showed me that kind of side of things, like, oh, here's how you play that Sabbath riff. And, you know, get heavy. You're kind of playing folk chords. You got to do it this way. and then. I turned him on to reggae, which my dad was totally into, and country music, which my mom was really into. And at first he wasn't having any of it, but then I turned him on to Amy Lou Harris and Graham Parsons and that whole scene. 
country rock, the birds. I played in the classic album, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, and that was it. He was sold. So then we went on to like do all this music stuff together and kind of blend those styles. And, and so how long were you down in uh, the Santa Cruz area for? Kind of off and on, grade 10 through 12. Okay. Different times, yeah. So you were going back and forth to school like there? and Yeah. Wow. That must have been... Super exciting and fun. And I mean, at the time, I'm sure I wished I could just relax and be like all my friends and have steady friends. But man, it was a lot of fun to meet all these new people and do all these different things. And, you know, everyone, I could talk to the people in one place about the people in the other place and it sounded exotic and cool. And it was great. Yeah, of course, right? Because yeah. you're coming back to Vancouver and you're like, I'm going to these reggae concerts yeah. and meeting all these cool people and playing music down there. And you're like, what? That's so cool, Johnny. <laughs> and the people down there thought Canada was cool. And I hadn't gone to the back to the Kootenays yet, so I wasn't talking about that. But there was a scene, there was various scenes up here. I was into the, there was a bit of a revival of the psychedelic music that was in Vancouver in the late 60s, in the mid-90s, I guess. Bands like Hydroelectric Streetcar and The Collectors, who went on to become Chilliwack. Okay. So those are two na- two names I remember anyways. But so that was cool. So we, as teenagers in Kitsilano, we'd go to these psychedelic shows out at UBC or something like that and take acid and <laughs> be weirdos, and it was great. Right on. So I'd tell people down in Santa Cruz about that, and they thought that was cool and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So then how did the uh, the music progress for you after after that? Because you're talking about all these different influences and that. Like, I know the kind of music that you play now. Mm-hmm. I don't want to define it for you, but my idea is, like, it's a little bit more of, like, a folk rock type style mm-hmm. and um yeah how did you progress from those influences as a teenager through your 20s to where you are now yeah well i would say there's sort of different phases of music one was my friend john when we were teenagers so that was like learning the riff in stairway to heaven and a hendrix song or two and the basics of the reggae upbeat kind of thing. But I still wasn't thinking I could necessarily write songs, or I would like to, but I wasn't yet. And then somewhere kind of after that, I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I could write a song. And I think that's kind of around when I went to music school for six months, too. And I had a girlfriend at the time whose name was Sparrow. I think she's since changed her name, but People who know her know who she is, and people who don't never will. <laughs> and um, she played flute, and I was in music school, because that's how I met her, was at a party that the, some music school friends were having in this old church. It was pretty cool. So we started busking in the Granville Street Skytrain station entrance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right on. What yeah. year was this? This would have been... 90 or 91, okay. I believe, some somewhere in there. I can't remember if it was pre or post first Gulf War, which I don't know. It's all a blur. But um, so she turned me on to Leonard Cohen. And that 
was a big influence on my songwriting and that kind of intimate folky style. That's where I learned, oh yeah, you could I'd never really heard that. You know, I'd heard Dylan do it some, but Leonard Cohen was even less cool somehow. So more interesting maybe or at the time. Are we talking about early Leonard Cohen or Um well, I mean, he certainly hadn't come out with certain albums yet or he had a huge body of work after that as well. But yeah, I guess it would have been early stuff that she turned me on to. Okay. You know, the classic one with it might have even been like a greatest hits thing with Sisters of Mercy and Suzanne and all these things. I'd probably listen to that on repeat for like a year or something. So, wow. Right yeah. on. And during that time, you're busking at the Granville Street Skytrain Station. Yeah, and, and listening to a lot of Hendrix and George Jones and Willie Nelson, a lot of Willie Nelson. John and I got into Willie Nelson together, so that was a big influence on me. And Dolly Parton. But my mom also introduced me to all these people because my mom was a radio engineer. That's how I ended up in the stairwell at Co-op Radio. She was one of the engineers who built it, the transmitter to be exact, over on Mount Seymour. So I kind of grew up under the mixing board at bars where she was mixing sound, and she was really into Emmylou Harris. That was like her main thing. And so she knew all these heavy music people, record collectors, DJs, people who later went on to run you know, the Folk Fest, the Vancouver Folk Festival and things like that were just people in my life that would come over and have tea and whatever. So, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of how I ended up so immersed in music for sure. Yeah, man, that's amazing. So when you say that your mom was mixing music for shows but uh, and, and you were present for them, do you remember particular bands that... Uh... No, I was too young, but I... Yeah, I vaguely remember Doug and the Slugs, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that she was mixing live sound at Rohan's, which um, was famous at the time for a bunch of things. I don't know if you remember that SCTV skit, Rock Pile, Mel's Rock Pile. I don't know. Eugene Levy is this kind of funny, kind of like, what, what, what were they making fun of? I don't know if it was Dick Clark or something like that, but he'd just come on and say, hey, welcome, kids. We're going to groove to these. And then they'd have a real, like I remember they had Rough Trade on once. That was cool. Like Bruce Coburn, whatever. But Rohan's was where the rock pile happened for real. Rohan's rock pile. And I don't know what that was. I think that was just like Thursday night local bands or something even. But um, a little bit of canadiana for you yeah cool man right on <laughs> i've never heard of like uh rohan's i only got into uh going to watch live music in uh -huh. vancouver in the mid 90s so mm -hmm. that's uh it seems like it was a little bit before my time yeah tom dodge who's my my best brother here on pender he he knows all about rohan's he played there tons back in the day so it's funny we talk about that sometime okay cool he might have been playing and i was sleeping under the sun <laughs> 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 what part of sound was rohan's in uh, Kitsilano, right across from the Nam. If you've ever been to that, oh yeah, of classic. course, yeah. right across from the Nam, Fourth and McDonald, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> neat. Yeah. And, this, and now it's condos and it's a nail bar or something. But of course, it is. Yeah. I wonder if the Nam the Nam has to still be there. It's though. still there, but yeah. the cool building is not there. They knocked everything down, and now it just looks like a hole in the wall. Okay, 
Yeah. All right. For those listening, uh, the Nom's a classic vegetarian restaurant in uh, Vancouver. It's been open since the 70s. Yeah. And uh, notorious for having like the worst, meanest service. Right. Some people love it and like get a kick out of it or something. And other people leave in tears, literally. Yeah. I always found it was more just indifferent, not necessarily mean, but uh, just not really trying. There was yeah. no no effort that was required on the part of the server to uh, butter up the customer. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that and some delicious miso gravy with fries. And the miso gravy, yeah. The <laughs> curry miso gravy. Delicious. Mm. So bringing it more back into mm. the uh, the present here, like, and that, that was like a wonderful trip through time. <laughs> but uh, I was I was like thinking about how things have progressed into like uh, just after that first year of being on Pender and integrating into the music scene here. Mm-hmm. How did things evolve for you musically from maybe 2015 onwards till now? Yeah. Um well, I started working, I guess I found my my people, if you will, and I'm their people, obviously, too, so uh, no ownership implied, <laughs> but uh, a core of sort of musical people. There was me and Charlie and Clark, and we worked at, on stuff and jams, and then probably in 2015, I think, Tom and I said, okay, we've seen each other around and said, hey, brother, enough times. Let's let's figure this out. Let's, who are you? What's going on? And uh, just been, yeah, best brothers ever since. So then Tom started coming over to the jams too. And we'd have relatively regular for a while kind of blues jams and put together some sets. And Tom and I were playing a duo thing at Poets back when Ben McConkey was and poets in the summer there and also dan Sharman and susan tate i mean susan doesn't play music so much or in fact at all i don't think i've ever seen her play but i'm sure she's singing inside but dan and tom and i on saturday nights we'd go well tom and i would go over to dan and susan's and they have the farm there and we susan would usually Although sometimes, occasionally, Tom and I would contribute more than a bottle of sparkling apple juice (laughs) and actually cook something or bring something food-wise. But usually Susan would cook something amazing. Farm, whatever, Dan would pick it, Susan would cook it. And uh, and then we'd jam. And that was like the Saturday night. And uh, I just loved that. Other people came along sometimes too. Um, Patrick Brown, also Pat Smith. Various people at various times. The core was me and Dan and Tom. And now, of course, Heather, but it's been the pandemic, so we haven't been able to. But that's like the pinnacle of what I'm looking forward to in the next couple months is having a Saturday night jam with Dan and Tom and Heather. Right on. That'll be like all my dreams come true. You know, I really feared I'd never experience that again. So You mentioned the name Heather. Uh, who is Heather? Uh, Heather Reed, my partner in all things yeah obviously i or maybe not obviously but i moved away it's kind of jumping ahead here and then i came back almost a year ago now with heather we got that place there um, that austin and leah used to have and all their kids and family yeah so heather is a fantastic musician and uh, we play together all the time 
Okay. All right. So you, you mentioned that you took a year long break from Pender. Uh, and then yeah, you closer just, to two, but yeah. Two years. Okay. Yeah. All right. Two years from Pender. And that was to go. Um, why did you take a little bit of a break? Oh, that was one of those strange things in life where you don't know why it's happening the way it's happening. You could swear it's really not supposed to be that way and you fight against it and all those things. But I had a, a relationship, a long distance relationship where I'd occasionally see her. But and then it, it, after about a year, it fell apart. And I just got too wrapped up in the emotional experience. And I, as much as it was one of the worst choices in my life, I knew it was the best choice in my life too. So I just I had to do it, which was to leave that cabin, change it all up. And I was also finding Pender a very hard place to make a living as a songwriter because... Not that I was trying to make a living songwriting, but it was just too hard to work from home, which was my option as a computer person, and stay focused enough to make money. I, I just wanted to write all the time. So it wasn't working, so I moved to town and got a government job, which was like the last thing in the world I expected. But in the back of my mind, I kind of knew or certainly was my goal to meet somebody and try and get back to Pender. So, in fact, I left the majority of my stuff in a storage shed at my place. Okay. And was paying a nominal rent. Thank you so much, Eric and Sue. But, but it, of course, it works out, but not how you'd imagine it to might be working out. It works out differently. So it was pretty magical how it all unfolded. But yeah, that's why I had to leave. Okay. Well, it's interesting when you mention about leaving stuff behind in a storage unit, it sounds like that there there was an intention that you had. You're like, okay, I, I know that I want to come back, so I'm going to leave some things behind and set the wheels in motion to make that happen. Not exactly knowing how, mm -hmm. but knowing the what. Mm -hmm. and the what is the return. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm also... I mean, it started off with just a, an idea of, oh, okay, well, I'll put it in storage and maybe things won't work out and I'll hate the job and I'll come back here and stock shelves at the true value or whatever it takes, you know, which in the following two years in Victoria, before I met Heather, although I met her a year and a half into that or something, I often sort of kicked myself and thought, geez, I could have just got a job at the true value and just been okay with it just been a normal person and had my little thing and it would have been fine but uh, I had a friend who worked for government who's also my, my mentor for computer stuff he got me into web development and he not as a musician but he ran a similar path of working from home and then finding it hard to focus and he got a government job and said, hey, this works really well for people like us. You should give it a try. And uh, he wasn't wrong, so I'm still doing it. <laughs> when you say working from home and finding it hard to focus, what do you mean exactly? Because I know a lot of people are working from home. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't, but um, mm -hmm. I have spent time working at home on audio projects. And uh, <laughs> I have some idea of what you mean by it's hard to focus. But what, what do you mean exactly? Um, well, for me, especially living alone, because I don't find it as hard to focus now that I'm living with somebody, Heather, I 
just couldn't control myself enough to not pick up the guitar and work on that song that I was writing because really there's nothing more important to me than the song I'm writing, within reason, of course. So I had some good clients, but I just wasn't doing the work. And yes, I could have gone and gotten the job at the true value, but where I was at with the uh, rawness, I suppose, of the relationship breakup, I just felt like I wasn't ready to kind of throw in the towel and be single and lonely for the rest of my life on Pender. That's how it felt at the time. You know, the dating scene on Pender is pretty notorious, so <laughs> I, I uh, didn't think that was the way forward. Not that there aren't lots of lovely, eligible people here, but there's a whole political aspect to it and all kinds of funny stuff. And, and my friend was saying, hey, try out this job because it'll blow your mind a bit to be with an employer where profit isn't the motive. Okay. You know, give it a shot. And yeah, it is totally different. So Okay, cool. And so it's uh, doing some computer work for the government? Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I ended up doing like the most boring thing possible, which is funny for me because I'd rather be on the road not because of the excitement of being on the road or something. I mean, touring music is mostly hard work and travel, but um, that's kind of my ideal in a lot of ways. Or being holed up with recording gear and writing and being creative in that way. So I am a forms developer, which makes me laugh because there isn't much more boring than a government form, except for maintaining those government forms <laughs> and then if you thought that was the most boring thing on top of that you can go to regular meetings about maintaining government forms <laughs> and that's about as boring as it gets i truly think um not that everyone isn't doing valuable work and putting time and effort and all that and i i don't I don't mean it in that way, but just in that kind of humorous way that I used to poke fun at, I can now poke fun at myself about. So Sure, sure. But it gave you an opportunity to uh, have a big change in your life because I guess if you didn't go over to Victoria and take that job, chances are you would not have met your new partner. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and uh, But you're, you said that your mentor in web development mm -hmm. said that this would be something that would be good for you just because mm -hmm. not just of the fact that it's not a profit-driven organization that you're working for, but then it provides structure and, and income. It's like that, and that's what we need, right? Yeah, yeah. Good. Thanks for bringing that up. He, he did point that out in particular. It was like he was struggling just with life, you know, like keeping up with the bills and the rent and making deadlines and stuff like that. And he, he said that I should explore what it's like to not have those stresses because I was really stressing out right before I left. For the first two years, I had a contract that was quite regular. I was part of a, a nonprofit education organization working remotely. Um, so that was a really good fit, actually. But I don't know, I talked myself out of it somehow. And then I wanted to, before I got too much older, I was in my mid-late 40s at that point, or 
late mid for no early mid for early i don't know like 46 47 <laughs> somewhere in there. okay sounds good yeah, yeah. <laughs> um i thought oh tom who's my best brother is a master carpenter i always wanted to know about carpentry maybe i should just throw it all away and become a carpenter and see how that works because i'm sick of this computer thing it's giving me a bad back whatever i want to be physical i want to be outdoors so i did that for almost a year it was like six i don't know eight months six eight months with tom and then things got quiet in the winter so then my landlord eric pole he said yeah i could give you some work because then i had a bit of experience too and so then I did a couple of months with him, but then my hands started to seize up. And I talked to other longtime carpenters and they said, oh yeah, look at my hands. That's what happens when you're a carpenter. Your hands end up kind of like that. <laughs> and I looked at all my carpenter friends and they had these kind of closed up hands. And I thought, oh, okay, that's not great for playing guitar. No. What's my, what choice am I going to make here? Okay, I'm done with carpentry. But I had some tools still. and. uh I thought, well, maybe I can do just like a little bit here and there, just enough to do some odd jobs, kind of be more of a handyman. But I didn't really get anything going that way. Oh, and then I, and then I thought, okay, shit, I have to get back to something where I make the money I make with web stuff, which is like at least twice as much as what I was making as a beginner carpenter. So I landed this really cool contract with a professor out of Princeton University who had this whole team of people and a web team, and I was like the front-end web guy. And it paid really well. And, you know, I could have grabbed that opportunity and run with it and come up with something steady. And it could have led to other things. And, you know, I mean, I'm enterprising. I could have done that. But I just could not do it. I was way too busy processing my emotional stuff with that breakup and all the songs that was bringing. <laughs> it was like an opportunity I could not miss to write those songs and work through that stuff. So they eventually let me go. And then I realized, okay, I'm screwed. I got enough money here for two months, and then I'm out. So how did I survive that? I don't even remember. I think I did get a couple more odd jobs with Tom and started applying for this government job because it takes six months. It's the exact opposite of going down to Poets and getting a job <laughs> in the kitchen. <laughs> and, and so you applied and six months later they said... Yeah, yeah. And then in, I started applying like in the dead of winter, the computer part of it you got to jump through a couple hoops and then by the spring i was getting some interviews and then my first day of work at a, at the position i ended up getting was in august so that's how long it took okay you know it's so interesting here you talk about this uh this drive to make music your job is falling by the wayside you're unable to put the time and the effort into work because you're so driven to work on a song mm -hmm. that's a lot of passion that's a lot of intensity that's a lot of focus and drive and uh, it sounds like that um there's a difficulty that exists within that yeah i will forever be trying to learn how to har harness that better it's still 
drives me to distraction on a regular basis. When you're writing music, are you aware of time passing? Are you able to be in the flow state or are you are you just so wrapped up in what you're doing that you don't even know? Or are you pretty conscious of time passing while you're making music? That's a good question because I have a really vivid memory when I first started playing music, busking in front of that Granville Street SkyTrain station back before the SkyTrain went out in the other directions. There was just the one line in that one station there of time really standing still. And I just loved it. That was one of the first things that got me hooked on music. It was a very almost psychedelic kind of experience. Like, wow, you can affect your reality that much by getting in this flow, you know? Like, that's mind-blowing. But over time, that goes away, or you become comfortable with that. So you're not so blown away, like, whoa, what's going on here? You're just in it. Like, when you're jamming with people and it's a good groove, you're right in it. And when I was alone in the cabin, I would just really clear everything else out and sit with the what I was working on and take all day and all night and all week or whatever and bounce back and forth between songs and instruments and go for a nap and whatever I needed to do, go for a walk, eat, make pancakes. <laughs> and now it's, it's different again because I don't have the time and space like that because I have the full-time job and I'm in a relationship and we share the space. Although there is that bunkhouse I was talking about um, so I go down there and working on kind of getting that space creative, like I said. So now what I do is I, I guess it's meditation in a way. Like, I don't know. Do you meditate? I don't. So I can't really speak to it even. I do. Yeah. Okay. So if there's some form of meditation that's like in and out quickly, like a power meditation, 20 minute little thing or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever that kind of thing is, I, I'm assuming it might be similar to that because... I take a walk in the mornings before I start my work day. So I leave the house at like seven. And then I have about 20 minutes before and I walk by the bunkhouse on my way up the driveway. So I just deek in there and I just do it for 20 minutes. And I just pick up right where I left off yesterday. And after a week, I've got a song done or something. Oh, wow. Okay. So having to learn new ways of doing it. But it seems to work, and I, I do recognize that it's the same space. I just access it in a different way. I'm not really thinking about the time, but I must be because I'm hyper aware that I have to start work. So. Right. You talk about picking up where you left off. I heard this amazing piece of advice recently uh, for writers. Mm -hmm. And and I, I think the person said that it was Hemingway that did this, that he would stop writing mid-sentence. Ooh. Because the very next day when he came back to it, that he knew exactly how to finish that sentence and that there's no mucking about being like, okay, well, what, what comes next, right? Yeah. Like, okay, what does the next character say is that, because you can spend an eternity in that space uh -huh. rather than, okay, I know exactly how this sentence is going to get finished. So you just hit the ground running. Mm. And I thought, wow, that makes that. a lot of sense because yeah. I've done a bunch of writing in my past and mm -hmm. spent a lot of time looking at a blank screen or a blank page. Uh -huh. Where do I start? Have you tried it? Not yet, no. Okay. <laughs> but it seems like it makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. Like I don't have a project that's big enough that uh, like the only thing I'm doing is just some journaling here and there. Mm -hmm. But uh, 
anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. So when you say that you're just picking up right where you left off, when you have that little 20 minute session in the morning. Yeah, I think there's probably a similarity there. Yeah. That's neat. I'm usually working a verse and maybe I'll get halfway through a verse and I'll, won't think about it, but I bet you somewhere in my subconscious it's churning away. Probably. Yeah. So with your your partner, Heather, and like moving to the island and mm-hmm. having the house and like, because I know that like you guys are a musical duo together. What is uh, the name of your... Uh... Uh, Peach and Quiet. Peach and Quiet. Yeah. Is yeah. And we started playing. In fact, our first real gig, we had a, a sort of tune-up gig for the Tour de Zeal. I guess that would have been two summers ago when Jenny Brooklyn had us play over on... Galliano at the little resort there by the ferry. Okay. Um, and there was literally nobody there. <laughs> we just played to an empty lawn. And it was great. And that was sort of our first gig. We thought, okay, this bodes well. This will be fun. And then our next gig was probably our best gig to date, which was at Gather, which was happening at the time there at Hope Bay. And that was beautiful. And you know, all our friends, all well, they were my friends. She hadn't met too many of them yet at that point. But all my friends showed up and sold out, and it was great. How did you guys come up with the name Peach and Quiet? <laughs> uh, Heather was married to someone else for 20-something years or something. And they got married. Were they at that resort or it was just a resort on the island they were at somewhere in the Caribbean called the Peach and Quiet. And it's like classic Caribbean peach colored adobe walls or whatever. And uh, so she was telling me, you know, we were getting to know each other, talking about our past. And and I saw that and I said, oh, there's a good name for a duo. And she said, Really? And I said, yeah, actually, if you think about it. And she said, well, what about copyright? Oh, no, it doesn't apply if it's a different thing, right? And Okay, let's try it out. And uh, yeah, it seems to work well. <laughs> I like it. I think it's super cute. The yeah. first time I heard it, I, yeah. I loved it. I was like, ah, it's so hilarious. Uh-huh. It kind of suits our personalities. And, and funny enough, as these things often do, it's kind of hit the consciousness at the same time there's other peach and quiet things starting to happen oh yeah yeah there's like a because we set up a google alert for it okay so we see anything that if, if in theory if some blog blogs about us or says listen to our music or something we'll be aware of it so we can use it next time we apply for a grant <laughs> that's the kind of stuff you got to be aware of but um there's some uh craft brewery in somewhere in middle america putting out a cider called Peach and Quiet. It's like apple and peach or something. Yeah. And then uh, there's also a lipstick that preceded us. So we joke about writing a song because it's, it's Bobby Brown, Peach and Quiet lipstick. Okay. And it's sold on Sephora and whatever, you know, all these big places online. So we joke about, because it's totally legit, writing a song called Bobby Brown. Because we get their stuff erroneously when we're looking for our stuff. So we may as well turn the tables on them. <laughs> so Bobby Brown is a cosmetic company or? Oh, no, it's like a branded, he was a musician. Oh, actual Bobby Brown. Okay. Yeah. All right. But he's he's come up with his own line of lipstick? I guess, yeah. Okay. All right. You know, these, okay. these modern moguls, they have their money <laughs> everywhere. 
<laughs> Why not? Yeah. Hey, Bobby, we can make a lot of money if we come up with some lipstick. He's yeah. like, all right, where'd I sign the check? So now we got to make a song about his lipstick. Or just about his name. Just about Bobby Brown. Yeah. It's yeah. like, it's uh, there's some catchy beats from the past yeah, from Bobby Brown. A lot of things that ran with Brown. <laughs> Bobby Brown. Funny. So, and like, you guys... Um, how do you guys have an EP out, or is it a full album? Or yeah, we have a full album. Oh, right at the start of the pandemic, pretty much. Um, well-known uh, Canadian uh, folk scenester producer musician Steve Dawson, who I was round about. Just like f- I clicked the friend thing, and he said okay at some point in the past when I was on the scene in Vancouver recording my EP, which is unrelated in 20, just when I moved to Penner in 2014 is when I released it. And I was, we were looking at maybe getting him to come in and play on it, but he wasn't unavailable. But at that point, I friended him on Facebook, flash forward to the pandemic, and he posted on Facebook, hey, I'm starting this new thing. His studio is in Nashville called Black Hen, He's starting this thing called Hen House Express. You send us a vocal track, we'll do everything else. Wow. Okay, well, that's easy. Let's try it out. We did the first one. We really dug it. We did another few. We really dug it. Said, okay, forget it. Let's just do a whole album like this, which is kind of cheating in a way. Like, usually to get a whole album, it's a lot of work and a lot of craft goes into it on a lot of people's parts at a lot of different stages. And it costs a whole lot of money. Mm. So we kind of squeezed an album out for demo rates, you know? Cool. Which some part of me almost feels like, well, you can't push it quite in the same way, but we did anyways. And it took, no problem. (laughs) Radios picked it up. Mind you, the other difference between what I've done previously, which was put all my money towards the album, was now we put half the money towards the album and half the money towards various marketing things, which can be, you know, getting help applying for a grant or getting someone to do PR in Europe or, you know, various things like that. And it's all interconnected and everybody knows everybody and it's just all part of being in the industry and trying to get anywhere. What are you hoping for? What's uh, what's your dream with Peach and Quiet? Uh, well, my personal dream is <laughs> kind of twofold. I guess one, which if I had to take one or the other, my truer self, the inner, inner voice would, would take somehow knowing that I was appear to some people I've looked up to, which has already happened in a way, like, not that I'm anywhere near Les's level as a player, but I hang out with him and we jam, you know, and it's not like he doesn't want to play with me or something like that. I'm kind of at the level of people that play with people like that, recorded with Steve Dawson. One of the things I learned along the way in music is you can play with really amazing players if you pay them, right? So it's it's a mix of these things. But, um, you know, if I could have Willie Nelson call me up and say, man, that is a hell of a song. I'd like to record it. And he recorded it and it was a total flop and it didn't make a dime. That would be better for me than getting some one-hit wonder that no one thought was any good, but 
somehow got on TikTok and I made enough to pay my mortgage, you know. But I would like both of those things. But recognition from your peers or interacting with musicians, like that seems like that's paramount. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, the other side of it that would, I think is obtainable, frankly, but whether it happens is a real roll of the dice for everyone who tries, is just to be able to pay my bills. Yeah. You know, which is, these days it's probably like, closer to three grand a month but two or three grand a month it's not that much but two or three grand a month streaming is like i think a couple million streams a month you know it's not easy to do so and so when you say streams a month what platform are we talking about that would just be streaming so spotify or apple music or youtube or there's all kinds of places where people can stream your stuff. You... Oh, okay, but I didn't realize that there was that much. Um, so if you have a couple million streams a month on Spotify, yeah. you're getting compensated. Yeah, a couple thousand bucks. Wow, really? Yeah. Okay. You know, I had one so-called in, uh, streaming hit for me. For me, it was a hit where Spotify put it on their here's some new weird stuff playlist. Mm-hmm. And... For a few days, I was getting thousands of streams a day, which was like, wow, cool. But it only lasted for that week, and I ended up with 17,000 streams or something like that, and that got me about 70 bucks. Cool. So that was cool, but that was in one week, and since then, I've made you know, another five bucks, and then with Heather and I's stuff, we were making about 10 bucks a month, you know? So we're... We're not even remotely close to covering what we've put in, and that's how music is. It costs money. It doesn't make money. So if I could make it to where I was like covering the costs of making the music plus paying my bills, that would mean quite a bit coming in, actually, because you put out so much. So it's, I feel like it's nice to state these intentions out loud of what yes. it is that we want. And we, and we don't necessarily know how we're going to get it. Mm-hmm. And because that's not even important, I don't mm-hmm. think. I think it's just uh, you, you have a target that you're aiming for. Heather's really big on that. And this is funny that you mentioned that, actually, because she writes out goals or things, visions, whatever things that she wants to do. So we have an American PR people it's it's a company i guess but it's three people it's this guy and his niece or something and another person and so it's a real small uh, almost family thing and they do the american college scene radio scene sorry and some of the public radio stations that feed into npr and that kind of stuff so it's kind of where you start at the bottom to get known in the states which would usually lead to the ability to book a tour because people have actually heard of you before. So you can get a gig as an opener on some local gig somewhere and make a string of them. And So the way they track that is a chart called the NACC chart. I can't even remember what it stands for. So Heather had wrote NACC number three. and And I thought, oh yeah, that would be funny. And then... The first, so that started on Monday, I think, and today's Saturday. Yeah. So yesterday we got a thing back from them saying, oh, hey, look at this. You're number three on the ads chart, which means 
that's like a chart of how popular you are with disc jockeys initially, adding you to their list of things that they might play. We're still not clear on what it translates to as far as actual spins. Okay. But we were number three on an act internal chart thing. So it's funny how you say that. You got to put it out there, you know? Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's true. Like, uh, I, I, uh, I don't do it enough. Um, I think I need to do it myself more. Like, but I do I, it I, in songwriting. Yeah. So you got to be careful because you, you want it to be the best song, but you also got to be careful with what you're singing about because it's likely to happen at some point down the line, mm. <laughs> which is no different than, you know, you got to think about what you're, or be careful about what you're thinking about or who you're spending your time with or who you're working with or eh, life yeah absolutely but you so you're saying with the act of songwriting it's a bit of like a like magic happening uh, lately i'm thinking um i'm not super knowledgeable on it or skilled or educated in any way but you know every now and then you see kind of like a popular physics article pass somewhere in the news cycle and you look at it and one of the current ways to look at it or thinking is that time is a three-dimensional thing and the experience of it happening chronologically is i don't i don't understand that part of it yet but time itself is actually all going on at once and every now and then i get pictures of that where like in a way, I'm still back there when I first moved to Pender. Mm. You know, I'm still in awe standing on my porch. That never changes. And whatever happens a couple years from now, or ultimately, you think maybe about your death, you know, these heavy things, it's all kind of already happened, or it's all still happening, or some combination and it's a little murky and you slide in and out at times so the songwriting you know i think oh yeah this is this story rings true for me that i'm writing about so i connect with it versus something that's like oh that that never happened or that's not happening or i just don't care about it but the ones where they seem like they actually did happen or might happen those are the ones that I like. So that's how I kind of tapped into it, I think. Neat. Neat. I don't know if that made any sense. It does, actually. Well, just to what you're saying, like, uh, it, when we have difficult experiences in our lives, you know, we're like, oh, my gosh, it feels like everything's falling apart. You know, like, how am I going to afford this? Blah, blah, blah. When we look back on those experiences, they seem kind of silly uh, mm -hmm. in the present. When mm -hmm. you look back at the past, you're like, oh, why did I get so stressed out about that? Right? That really everything everything turned out fine, right? <laughs> yeah. And and it's a good lesson to bring into the present to recognize that when we're catastrophizing right now to remember, look how many times in the past mm -hmm. I was freaking out, but everything's going to be fine. But to add a, a layer to that is that I've actually gone back in my mind and soothed younger versions of myself mm -hmm. and told them, don't worry, everything's right. going to be right. okay. Everything's going to be fine with the intent of actually huh. having a ripple effect through quote unquote time that it uh, will wind up having uh, impact through my life in a way I just can't really put into words or perceive, but soothing that younger version of myself would actually have an impact in the past that would ripple through 
to the present and ultimately the future. And yeah, something about it makes sense in a way that I find difficult to explain, but I think it's worth investing time in. So I'm loving it, man. That's that's great. I'm really picking up what you're putting down there. That's good. I uh I often converse with my younger or I've never thought about my older, but often my younger self. But in this present moment, it's kind of like a stunted version of me that never outgrew it that's sitting here with me now. I never considered perhaps going back. That's a, a cool perspective. Thanks. Yeah. Like we, we have so much time where we're just existing in our own minds and there's so many different ways that we could be interacting uh, with ourselves and just experimenting and trying with different things. And as long as we have a positive intent, I think that it's uh, it's worth investing in, right? Mm-hmm. Because like you were saying earlier, you know, you, you want to be careful with who you're spending time with, like what your thoughts are, what it is you're saying, because absolutely, you know, like especially something very physical and tangible, like who you're hanging out with, you mm-hmm. can see a direct correlation with, you know, events that will wind up happening in your life because if you weren't hanging out with certain people, certain things wouldn't happen for good or for bad. Yeah. Yeah. And that um I think that the the mental space is is very similar yet just harder to perceive. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah, so I try and let that kind of space really inhabit me when I'm songwriting. Which I'm sure you've heard other writers talk about this too. And it's a very common phrase with songwriters is like getting out of your way. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the mantra I try and live up to (laughs) in so many ways, you know? Yeah. I I think it's a really important one. What's, uh, what's the song you're working on right now? Oh gosh. Let me see. I I got lost in this uh, recording thing and that was one called Hey. Although I'm not sure that's going to be the title because I just can't get around that sort of Mumford and Sons hipster hey kind of <laughs> chorus thing. And I, it's it's not that. So, um, and but then I've got another one on the go, and it's about being at the apex of something and enjoying it. <laughs> you know, it's one of those rare positive songs. With just a little tinge of acknowledgement that it will pass. But other than that, and a, perhaps even a little bit of ego making fun of it. But but ultimately, it's about appreciating being at the apex of something. Yeah, yeah. When you're, at, when you're in the moment, it, j- it just all seems to flow. It's easy. You know, so dig it. You'll have lots of time very shortly, probably, to uh, have issues and struggle (laughs) (laughs) good advice uh well we'll wind it up here at uh pretty quick but uh i think that's actually really like beautiful advice for for people to to hear but is there anything else that you want to share with uh the people of pender and other people listening to this podcast uh let me see yeah i just want to give a couple of thank yous i guess because some people really changed my life with my Pender experience and I've mentioned them already, but, uh, Leanne and Leanne Lundquist and Jamie Bradley just for my, my introduction. And, uh, I did some dog sitting for the, the dogs that everyone knows, the skipper keys they always have. And I uh, met lots of people walking the dogs and 
just yeah love those people and sue and eric thank you that cabin was the greatest place i ever lived and yeah if it ever comes up for short-term rental i'd love to spend a month in there and work on an album or something uh Lindsay, you know i don't even know her last name but uh is his last name hampson still no no well it may be again i'm not sure i'm not clear on that no well Lim- Lindsay hoopster Lindsay, yeah Lindsay. well oh what is Lindsay's last name yeah. i'm trying to think of her sister's name okay Lindsay, fantastic okay Lindsay, fantastic redheaded Lindsay. yeah yeah okay. um just a, a character that was really accepting and you know i just felt like i didn't have to conform to anything that's for sure um and she's just down the road here she, she's just been a real always had a big smile for me Angie bounce yes okay. thank you thank yeah. you um rick mcmullen it's like mr know everybody and uh just yeah great guy and still to this day you know he'll show up and fix your cables <laughs> it's great um jojo and adrian Cock at a mountaintop. Yeah. Just awesome people. And um and I've never really met them that much, but uh Tristan or Tristem maybe and Jane, Island Monster, their psychedelic band. Okay. That was a little formative for me. I saw them play. There was this little festival down at the hall the first year I was here. I don't know if you I think I may have seen you there actually. Hmm. Something about Island Monster sounds familiar, but I don't know that it was like in the trees behind the hall. Okay. Yeah, they had a little stage set up. It was it was cool. Um Kai, whose last name I also forget, runs Dog Mermaid. Okay, yeah. Yeah, she's been really lovely over the years to me as well and even showed me how to kayak a bit. Right on. <laughs> um Danny. I don't know his last name either. He he does the books at the liquor store. Okay. Yeah, he, he took me under his wing a couple times and introduced me to people and yeah, um, and then I just got to end it up with Tom Dodge. You know, Tom, love you, brother. Yeah, and hopefully this pandemic's over and we can all jam soon. Let's jam. Sweet, dude. That's really nice to have all those thank yous for people. That's uh, that's cool. Right on. And you, Chris Pocklock. Yeah, always wanted to meet you, finally. How about that? We're cutting that part out. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, thanks, man. Hey, thank you. All right. Well, there's another podcast in the books. And thank you again to Johnny for doing that interview. And to honor that interview, I decided I would come down to the Magic Lake swimming hole. So, Magic Lake is a lake that, if you live here, you're familiar with. And it's got a lot more length than it does width. <laughs> And there's homes on either side of it, but not on the ends of it. And I am currently, like I said, at this swimming hole area, which is really busy in the middle of summer, but not so much right now in early December at about 4.30 as the light's fading and some ducks are quacking and swimming around on the water, which is the reason I decided I'd come here today because there's something about Johnny's voice that reminds me of ducks over water. I can't really explain what I mean by that. I'm still trying to figure that out myself, but that's why I came here, to be around ducks and water. I also wanted to mention that 
due to the lengthy gap between the recording and release of this podcast that Dan Sherman, who Johnny mentioned a couple times during the podcast, passed away during this time. I wanted to give my condolences to his partner, Susan, and just to give some clarity to you about that situation. As well, I wanted to say thank you for listening. It's been a while, and thanks for coming back, and stay until the end. Thank you to Ben McConkie for providing some music for this podcast, and until next time.